Hey, Blundheads, you're in for a real treat on this episode. It runs a little longer than we normally go, but it's a good one. Author, lecturer, activist, and investigative journalist Alan Hornblum joins us for this episode of the Philly Blunt. Alan's investigative journalism started while he was working at Holmesburg Prison. He noticed a large number of inmates with bandages on their skin, and he later learned that medical experiments were being conducted on the inmates for more than two decades. The experiments were conducted by a dermatologist at Penn, and also the federal government was involved. He went on to write a book about it, and then he wrote another book about the K&A gang out of Kensington, which was basically Philly's Irish Mafia, and ended up helping Philly become the meth capital of the world. Hornblum is a serious guy who tackles serious issues, and we think you'll really enjoy this interview. Follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Instagram, and Facebook, all as the Philly Blunt. And keep an eye out for when we go live so you can watch the interviews as they happen and comment or ask questions. Those live interviews run on every platform but Instagram. Tell your friends and family about the Philly Blunt and kindly rate, review, subscribe to the Philly Blunt wherever you consume podcasts. And uh, we hope you enjoy this interview with the fascinating and most serious Alan Hornblum. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome uh, to the Philly Blunt. My name is Johnny Goodtimes. Uh, I'm joined by my uh, esteemed colleagues, uh, Reef. What's up? What's up? How are you, sir? Doing pretty good. Uh, Greg, how you holding up over there? Oh, just fine. Good afternoon. Um, all right, and good evening. And uh, we want to welcome our guest. Good evening. Uh, we have. Uh, uh, this uh, gentleman has uh, written all sorts of exciting uh, books about all sorts of various topics. And you guys know, if you're fans of the show, that we like people that uh, cover a lot of ground and a lot of different topics. And this gentleman certainly fits the description. Uh, Alan Hornblum, welcome to the show, sir. Good to be you're welcome. Thank you for joining us, sir. Uh, yeah, we we uh, we're excited to have you on. We know you've got a, a new book that just came out, um, and we are also going to obviously dive into some uh, some books you've written in the past. But author wasn't really on your agenda or resume or anything else coming out of college, was it? You must have my FBI file. Is that right, Johnny? <laughs> That's, <laughs> it. That's right. You have one too. Some serious research there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who do you know in Washington? Uh, I got a few. I got a few connections. I got a few. Yeah, yeah. I thought you had your connections at Greaterford and Trenton State. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to see. You know, you came out of college. You were teaching a literacy program. I guess straight right. out of school, and yeah. uh, you went to Holmesburg, and that was. Um, uh, yeah, I, that was obviously an eye-opening experience for you coming out of school. Very much so. Uh, the game plan was uh, right after I finished my uh, master's degree in history at Villanova to go to Africa. I was going to go into the Peace Corps. And with my, my lousy luck, uh, I didn't hear anything for many months. And uh, when I finally pressed them, what the hell's taking so long? They apologized and said they lost my application. And during that time, I was involved with a young lady, a uh, Temple senior, and all of a sudden I'm notified that uh, the good news after they found my application is that the minister of Botswana was very interested in me and they wanted to fly me to Chicago. I'm going to meet the minister and if everything goes well there, they're going to send me down to Florida for two weeks of training and then they send me to Africa. And although that would have been absolutely great uh, 
months earlier, now that I was involved with a young lady, I had to do a cost benefit analysis. <laughs> and because, uh, I'm pretty bad at, at, at math and numbers. I sort of made the wrong decision. I stayed home and got married, forgot about Africa, but I thought if I'm not going to go to the third world, as it was known then, maybe I can go to the third world America. And I figured that was our prison system. And I started working in the Philly prisons. That would have been 50 years ago this year, actually, 1971. I started working in the Philly prisons, teaching a, a literacy program. And uh, it was quite shocking, as you can imagine, moving from the uh, leafy confines of a mainline college to, uh, you know, some really tough cell blocks in Northeast Philadelphia, detention center, House of Correction, Holmesburg. And uh, that first day was uh, quite revealing, quite shocking, quite illuminating. Uh, there's, I mean, we could spend a, a number of shows just, just discussing prisons. I've been in prisons all over the world at this point, and I, I know them pretty well. I've written books about them. I still hang out with uh, ex-prisoners, ex-cons, cops, comms, what have you. But I think what you want me to talk about is the fact that one of the more shocking things I saw on that initial day and every day thereafter were the scores and scores of inmates who were wearing uh, adhesive tape and bandages on their arms, their chest, their head, their legs. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, this place is, is pretty goddamn, you know, scary. You know, uh, there must be some, you know, uh, knife fights on a cell block or a gang war in the prison yard. And the next day when I'm on a block at DC, I asked a guard, John Reeves, what the hell's with all these guys who were, uh, you know, all covered with adhesive tape and bandages. He said, oh, that's nothing. That's just the perfume test for the University of Pennsylvania. So you can imagine my astonishment. You know, you're here uh, in a prison that's overcrowded, that stinks to high heaven, that's as noisy as hell. And they've got these uh, inmates, most of them uh, pretty well muscled and not smelling particularly well since it was a very hot uh, September uh, day that all this is occurring. And then you hear it's the University of Pennsylvania testing our page by Lanvin. I, I didn't buy it, uh, really had a hard time digesting it and continued to ask the guard, well, why do they do it? How do you know it's really perfume? Are the men getting anything for it? Are they being forced to do it? Are there repercussions? This went on for quite some while, and finally the guard said to me, look, Mr. Hornblum, this is not anything you or I would do, but these inmates are desperate for money, and they'll do anything to make it. And uh, I then proceeded to ask further questions about, you know, how do you know what's being applied is legitimately perfume and so forth and so on. And the whole thing just fascinated me because you have to understand each of the three prisons at that time, overwhelmingly minority. I'm saying 80, 85% black, 10, 15% Puerto Rican, 5% white. And the doctors are in there in their white lab coats with MD or PhD after their name. And, and to me, it just rang out as, if not a recipe for disaster, certainly a recipe for abuse. And the whole thing just fascinated me. And uh, I proceeded many days thereafter asking inmates, 
what are what's the reaction how much money are you making and that's the reason they were doing it to earn a buck if you had a job in the prison such as pushing a broom on a cell block you could make 25 cents a day however if you're a test subject you could be making a dollar a day if you're involved in some of the more dangerous experiments or those being run by the U.S. Army's Chemical Corps, you could be making $2 a day, which is princely wages back in that day in that atmosphere. And uh, these inmates, uh, overwhelmingly Philly guys, overwhelmingly black, overwhelmingly unschooled. Very few of them had a high school diploma. That's the reason I was there. Uh, they are already prone to bad decision-making, bad behavior. And now you've got the premier university in the area coming in uh, with uh, very articulate, knowledgeable doctors saying that uh, you can make some money as a, uh, a test subject for us. It's safe. Uh, it's not going to harm you. If anything goes wrong, we'll take care of you, all of this crap. And whether they bought it or not, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but they cer certainly bought into it, meaning that if you had a prison of a thousand people, you could have 50 to 75% of them being on one test or another. And it was just fascinating uh, that this went on. Actually, what the guard told me that first day, he said, Mr. Hornblum, you're here, you're new here, not the experiments. The experiments have been going on for two decades wow that was 1971 they would end about 1974 so it was the culture of the prison uh that experimentation was taking place by a renowned dermatologist albert kligman by a prestigious university the university of pennsylvania and uh, it was allowed to go on because a uh, prison is really a paramilitary operation uh, the guards aren't going to ask questions. The social workers, who were a little bit brighter and better schooled, they didn't ask questions. And I was repeatedly told, Alan, you better keep your mouth shut or you better forget about this. Otherwise, you're going to find your ass on the outside or worse, they could lock you up. So it, it was just a, uh, a chilling sort of uh, environment to walk into. I'm not even going to mention the stuff that went on with uh, the Nation of Islam and uh, the pressures that were put on inmates to join and the violence that took place and everything else that went on in there, unless you really want to hear about that and talk about it. Uh, but it, it was a pretty chilling environment uh, a half century ago. I'm curious, the you know, because you're talking about, were you nervous about telling other people about this? Because this is obviously, like you said, this is this is UPenn involved. Dow Chemical, I think I read, was involved. Right. So the prison systems involved. So you're you're kind of going up again, or you're you're talking about just some major major organizations in the area, right. and that that can bring down a lot, uh, bring down the hammer uh, if they need to, because they've certainly got the resources for that. Was that, was that something that you were aware of right off the bat? Or is that something that you learned about? It? Without a doubt, back in the day, meaning 50 years ago, I was repeatedly told by social workers and guards, forget about it. If the uh, superintendent gives the green light, that's what we're doing in here. Don't ask questions, get out of the way. Uh, and I was tempted to uh, ring the bell back then and try to expose what was happening. 
But I was young and in a position of ignorance because I had nobody with knowledge or authority giving me information. I had no documents. I had no proof of anything uh, except my own suspicions. And I always thought that there would be a historian, medical ethicist, a journalist who would delve into it and write the uh, the story of what was going on, because I knew something untoward was taking place. As the years go by, mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, 90s, and nothing has come out about those experiments, but they had seeped into my cerebellum to the point that I certainly couldn't forget about it. And I'm still running into the prisoners because now in the 90s, I'm in the sheriff's office in City Hall. So I'm still coming in contact with inmates and guards and cops and robbers. And a lot of these inmates I knew from years ago because they had been going in and out of the system all of these years. And it it just sparked my inquisitive nature But let me take a look at this. So I started tracking down inmates on the street in our cell room on the seventh floor of City Hall. A lot of people don't realize that. But back in the day, on the seventh floor, we had a cell room that had about 300 inmates. They were all there for court, their court appearances. And that's what the sheriff's office did. We moved inmates up and down I-95 from the prisons to City Hall. And then we were uh, in charge of protection and guarding the, the courtrooms. So I'm all 300, all 300 are just put in one cell in City Hall. We had about three different small cells. The largest one would easily remind you of the snake pit. If you ever saw that classic movie, it was a it looked like a fishbowl because there was a glass a large, it was surrounded by glass and you had men packed shoulder to shoulder. Sometimes they had to stand up. There was no place to sit and Mm. they would waiting there all day to be called to a courtroom. And it it was uh, something that I actually led a fight over that that had to be changed and altered and expanded. And the sheriff and I got into a battle with city council and particularly Ed Rendell And I think I did a pretty good job of exposing it and getting a lot of uh, major newspaper coverage so that even though the plans were down the line to go into a new criminal justice center, something had to be done more immediate to relieve the uh, the crowding that we had on the seventh floor. Uh, So they did expand it a bit and it made it uh, a little bit more uh, livable. But it was a, a bad news situation that had been in practice for decades. Uh, so I start tracking down inmates and I'm interviewing them on the street. I'm going to Greaterford. I'm going to other prisons, taking their stories. While I'm doing that, I'm doing research on the prisons, uh, looking up everything I can with regard to the experiments that took place there, uh, getting names of doctors, getting names of medical technicians, of nurses, um, trying to get the doctors to talk. And it was so interesting early on. The inmates, overwhelmingly black now, getting up in years, they're willing to talk to me because they knew me from years ago, but they didn't know anything because they're basically, they were treated basically as researchers would treat lab rats. When you have a PhD or a physician testing a concoction on a mouse 
that doctor doesn't give a five minute interview and start, you know, telling the mouse what's going to happen, you know, and that's what happened with the inmates. They really weren't informed. There was no informed consent of, of any, you know, real substance. Uh, the inmates were interested in money. They were interested in getting on experiments that wouldn't harm them. And uh, they were they needed the money, whether it's just for commissary or to send to their wives, to their girlfriend, to send to their attorney. Uh, some of them had low bails back then of a few hundred dollars. You're on enough tests. You can bail your ass out of there. So that's that's what happened uh, with a lot of these guys. And I'm uh, doing this full court press on documents. And I finally get so involved in this whole thing that I fill out a series of Freedom of Information Act documents to get government documents. So I'm now pursuing the CIA, the FBI, the DEA. I'm going to all sorts of government agencies, Department of Agriculture and and any any others you can think of to get documents to see what may have taken place in Holmesburg prison. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to receive hundreds, thousands of pages of documents of things Dr. Kligman was doing in there for both his own entertainment and intellectual curiosity, as well as many others in the business of research around the country. As you mentioned early on, Dow Chemical from Michigan contacts uh, Kligman wanting to do experiments. You have R.J. Reynolds from North Carolina wanting to do cancer experiments. You have the U.S. Army down in Edgewood Arsenal wanting to do chemical warfare experiments. So I'm getting these documents. I'm tracking down people. I'm doing really a serious full court press and getting back to your initial question, which I nearly forgot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I started to have some doubts and concerns. Uh, well, especially I'm being warned by other people, Alan, do you know who you're taking on? Do you know who right. you're investigating? They're going to crack down on your ass and you're going to end up being on a cell block. Uh, I thought that was possible. I didn't think it was probable. But by then I was so wedded to it, it had become somewhat of a personal crusade to the point that I gave my, up my job, and it was a pretty good job. I was the chief of staff for the Philly Sheriff's Office. So I had about 300 deputies under me. I had a gun. I had a badge. I had a city car. And uh, because I played a lot of football without a helmet, a little bit of brain damage caused me to give up a good thing to uh, go out on a limb and do this research on this book. Acres of Skin took five years. It finally comes out in 1998, and I go on a six-city tour. It's given, you know, prominent notice in uh, the New York Times and uh, newspapers around the country. I'm on uh, Good Morning America, the Evening News with Dan Rather, the BBC. So it certainly resonated that way. It, it didn't bring in anything financially. I, I lost a hell of a lot of money uh, by giving up the job to go on this crusade, but it, it was a sense of accomplishment and uh, it still resonates because, like yourselves, I, I get requests all the time, uh, and it's actually been pretty hot recently uh, for some reasons I think you can understand where people are exploring the history of use and abuse of uh, minorities and, and so forth and so on. Was, was Kligman unique? Was he the only, were there other dermatologists and doctors doing this in other parts of the country, did you find out, or was it unique to this area? Kligman is special. 
Fligman is not unique as a researcher. There were many doctors throughout the 20th century, and those doctors tended to be some of the best and the brightest intellectually, curiosity-wise. However, they seem to have a blind spot with regard to medical ethics. And I followed up Acres of Skin with uh, Against Their Will and Sentence to Science, which are two more books on the history of using abused populations as guinea pigs for medical experiments. Doctors in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, certainly after the Second World War, know where to go when they want to do experiments that need test subjects. They gravitated to prisons. They gravitated to institutions that held uh, what was called then retarded children or earlier the feeble-minded. They went to institutions that held orphans. They went to basically institutions that not only had what we call marginalized people, but throwaway people. I mean, in my book, Against Their Will, that I wrote with uh, Judy Newman and, and Greg Dober, came out in 2000. Uh, may have been 18 or 16, I forget now. Uh, that is a history of using institutionalized children as guinea pigs. Doctors were willing to use anybody. So they could use a black prisoner in Mississippi or North Carolina or Michigan, or they could use retarded children in Tennessee or New York or California, or they could use unwed mothers, or they could even use infants just days old in radiation experiments. Now, this is not something that I created. You can get my books. If you don't want to put out the few dollars to buy it, you can go to a library and get it. You'll see the documentation in there cites the medical journal articles where doctors were proud of their experiments, were proud of their discoveries, and they put down who they used as test subjects, when they used it, so forth and so on. And so a lot of this went on. What makes Kligman special is that I would argue that no place in America saw as many people, prisoners, in as many experiments as we saw in the Philly prisons that ran from 1951 to 1974, basically a quarter century, because there were hundreds, thousands over the years of prisoners that were incorporated in innocuous experiments, testing medications from athlete's foot, hair dye, uh, deodorant, to far more dangerous things like injecting them with radioactive isotopes, putting dioxin on their faces and backs, and giving them all sorts of chemical warfare agents for the uh, U.S. Army's Chemical Corps and the CIA. So uh, Pennsylvania stands out generally. I, I would say, according to my research, half the states in America at one time or another had at least one prison that was allowing doctors to do experiments. Pennsylvania by far had the most. Uh, part of that is Kligman and uh, the University of Pennsylvania, which allowed it and benefited by it, and made millions from it, as well as the fact that Philly and Pennsylvania runs right along that 
uh, pharmaceutical alley that stretches from Connecticut down through New York, Jersey, into Pennsylvania and Maryland. A hell of a lot of uh, chemical companies there and drug companies, you know, looking to do phase one drug testing. So uh, the confluence of all those things made, let's say, southeastern Pennsylvania a real hotbed of experimentation. Hmm. Uh, people died or, or got sick from these experiments. Do you have like a list of, of, of well, if you go to Acres of Skin, I quote an awful lot of people, and there's a lot of my writings online uh, where I use actual names of people. Uh, I do not name anybody who specifically died because I could not confirm it through documentation. When I talk to the inmates and talk to guards they would bring up inmates that were taken out of the prison because they had a bad reaction and they were unconscious or something happened to them. They were either taken to a city hospital or they went a little bit nuts and they were taken to Byberry. And others told me that folks actually had died. Uh, so I do mention those allegations, but I don't mention any names because I could not have it confirmed through documents. But there are an awful lot of people going back to that era who I tracked down who believe that was the case. Did you ever sit down face-to-face -face with Kligman for an interview? I never sat down with him face-to-face, -face, but I, I did interview him on the phone. You have to understand that Kligman uh, became quite sensitive to his growing reputation as being another Mengele. So if any journalist be it from Philly Magazine or the Inquirer, contacted him and wanted to interview him about uh, skin creams, sun damage, uh, this, that, and the other. He'd be willing to entertain them and talk your head off. If you brought up the Holmesburg Prison, D.C., House of Correction Experiments, he'd shut you right down and says, no, I'm not talking about that. So I did get him on the phone from his office at Penn and I had a long interview with him, which I was pleased to get because I wasn't even sure I would get that. And uh, if you go to the last chapter, I believe, of Acres of Skin, you'll see his uh, rejoinders to my questions about why he did it, how many things he did, so forth and so on. And he basically felt that he was doing a service to humanity. He was doing a service to the inmates. He felt that he and the other doctors should be patted on the back because they were giving the inmates their time. The inmates, you know, were basically, you know, throwaway people and earth. willing to spend time, you know, with, with doctors and sophisticated medical graduates and whatever. He saw that as some sort of great gift that he was providing. Jeez. Christ, what a uh, J.O. But he uh, he made millions from it. Uh, he's arguably the most famous dermatologist of the 20th century. And uh, some of his discoveries were basically very, very successful for he and Jay and Jay and Penn. Uh, Jay he's, and a he's a Retin-A guy, right? Retin-A for uh, Retin-A and Renova. Uh, the, the, these are things that initially thought he had damaged the inmates with, but there was some feedback from people that it, it cleared up not only acne, the retin-A, but it, uh, it provided some sort of salve for wrinkles. And of course, there's a very big anti-wrinkle 
constituency out there. You know, women, you know, want to look as, as young as they can for as long as they can. So uh, things that were advertised as anti-wrinkle agents sold quite well. When you combine J&J and Penn and Dr. Kligman, all elite names, uh, it, it basically has the, uh, the imprimatur of uh, the best. Hmm. I, I'm curious because you, you you have sort of you know you, you obviously have this activist bend. I mean you, you you wouldn't have written a book if you didn't, and yet you're at one point chief of staff for the Philadelphia Sheriff's Office. Do you think they knew that you were thinking about writing this book? I mean, it seems like kind of yeah, well, I had, that you would get that job if you're seen as an activist. Well, when I got the job, I was just out of Villanova, and I was not an activist. Uh, he's a Nova guy. They thought he was, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, furthest yeah. thing from an activist from Villanova. Yeah, yeah, yeah. conservative. Part of the machine, the cog in the machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, but but there was no reason to think of me in any way. I was I was actually quite insignificant. Mm. I'm a, uh, a young kid out of Penn State and Nova, and I'm teaching in a prison. And at that time, I had no great compunction to do an exhaustive study, I had, you know, it was, it was, you know, being a Penn State Nova boy, you know, uh, rarely did I pick up a book, um, <laughs> football or, you know, uh, playing sports, uh, which I did far more than uh, pursue any serious academic arena. Although I did get a master's and go on to get a second master's and work on a PhD. Uh, it wasn't until decades later when I'm in the sheriff's office and I'm thinking about those experiments and still running into guys and, and recognizing that if I don't do this study, if I don't do the research, if I don't do the book, this whole phenomenon will be forgotten about. And so I started to dig into it. And the more people I interviewed, uh, you know, as I said earlier, the inmates were willing to talk. The doctors did not want to talk. Uh, they they basically hung the phone up on me. They uh, told me they wouldn't talk unless they had an attorney present. Uh, you know, they said they would sue me. I mean, they really threatened me. Others said, you know, they feared this moment all of their professional lives because they started to gradually recognize that what they did was wrong. Uh, so I then start putting it all together, and now I'm tasked with writing a book, which I've never done before. Yes, I had over the years become an activist. In fact, I left the prison system in 1980 to become the organizer, the director of Americans for Democratic Action, which has a low profile now. Mm. Back in the 70s, it was the organization that fought Frank Rizzo and did a lot of issue organizing in the city. So I'm the executive director. I do that for three years, and then I work at uh, PUP, uh, the unemployment project, for a few years organizing uh, low-income people and the unemployed. So I become a pretty good organizer, and I'm writing op-ed pieces, and I'm doing some articles for magazines on, on related issues. But I, I had never done a 300-page book, certainly not one on this controversial topic, and uh, I'm being warned by an awful lot of people and friends, you know, you, you really shouldn't be doing this. You know, you're, you're putting a target on your back. Uh, but I was no longer married at that point. I didn't have any kids. And I, I was willing to take the risk because I recognized what had gone on for all those years 
was was really a major, major transgression where the best of us was using the least of us. And I thought they should be called on the carpet for it. So after five years in 98, uh, the book comes out, makes its impact. And then I go on to uh, write other books about other topics that I found interesting that I thought deserved a book that deserved some attention. When I give lectures at universities or historical societies or whatever it may be, invariably I, I mention, you know, here in Philadelphia, every damn year we come out with a new book on Ben Franklin, but there's so many we're <laughs> right about. That's right, right Johnny. Harry Gold, <laughs> an incredible character from South Philadelphia, then Philadelphia and Northeast Philly, who gave the secrets of the atomic bomb to the Soviets. He's mentioned in a lot of great books on Soviet espionage, but mm -hmm. no one ever did a book on him. And I thought he was just fascinating. I did that book. I did the book on the old Irish mob, the K&A gang. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk about that because I'm yeah. uh, K and A is near and dear to my heart growing up. Yeah, I'm a Kensington like Juniata Park guy, and I've never heard of the K and A gang. Yeah. Oh, so before, before we jump into that, Alan, I just wanted to ask: Has has Hollywood come knocking? Because this sounds like a like a movie waiting to be made. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, and recently, the Acres of Skin story was optioned by a couple of uh, New York women who are uh, producers, directors. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and they want to do something using the uh, the story of Holmesburg and the mass use of black inmates as guinea pigs for medical research. I'm sure. And uh, so hopefully something will come of that. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But the, the bottom line is there's an awful lot of subject matter out there that uh, needs addressing and attention. And I guess that's become my niche because we have a, a phenomenal story. I, I wrote a book, American Colossus, on Bill Tilden. Probably none of you guys heard of him. But if you go back to the newspapers of the 1920s and turn the pages, he is as big as anything you will see. And he has an international reputation. He comes out of Germantown, lived right across the street from Germantown Cricket Club. He's arguably the greatest athlete ever to come out of Philly and Pennsylvania. Yet, you know, you could walk up and down Broad Street tonight. Not one person would know the name. Right. Uh, and there are some reasons for that. But uh, it, it's just incredible how uh, people forget history, do not honor it. And and Philly's history is is quite rich, uh, but there must be a hell of a lot of cracks and potholes because a lot of incredible people and events and, and groups have fallen through the cracks, just like the old Irish mob. Uh, I mean, I, I spent a lot of years in the criminal justice system. I periodically heard the, the term the K&A gang and whatever. I, I would go and look it up and find out what I could. There wasn't anything there. And I thought that's ridiculous. And as I did more research, I thought there really is something here, but nobody's packaged it. Nobody's done the research. So that's when I put together uh, Confessions of a Second Story Man. Were they active? Yeah. Was the K&A gang, gang active as you were writing the book? Uh, not really. As I'm doing the book, they are all up in years because you have to understand the K&A gang basically get started at the same time Kligman walks into the Philly prisons post early 1950s. So if these guys are coming back from uh, the war, they don't want to get a job working in a, uh, a sweater factory. They don't want to make chum change. They want to be out late at night. They want to go to the bars. They want to get, you know, one or two Lincoln town cars 
a year. They want to pick up the babes. They want to sleep late. They got into crime and the crime that had become a cottage industry in Kensington was second story work. They became burglars and they were smart to do so because they could make a hell of a lot of money in a short time. And even if they got caught, they'd have enough money to pay the attorneys and they got the top attorneys and they'd only do uh, small bits. They do six to 18 months. They do a year or two. Whereas if they're sticking up, you know, uh, convenience stores or banks or whatever, they're going to get a, and end up with a five to 10 year or five to 15 year sentence, if not more. So uh, burglary became a cottage industry in uh, Kensington and a lot of other inmates or uh, some inmates, but other characters who, you know, wanted to become a gangster. They gravitated to Kensington and, and joined the gang. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's funny because the way I heard about you to begin with was actually through that book, even though the Acres of Skin book is probably the the more well-known book. But I had I had uh, I have a friend from up in that area who uh, had a relative and was telling me about the second story boys. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I haven't heard of this. this. is fascinating. And then go online and you're kind of the authority on the second yeah, story. You know, boys. You know, rewards. Uh, of Philly, particularly around Kensington and, and Frankfurt and Port Richmond and Tacony and Wyoming, the 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 K and A gang is is really legendary. It's it's a mm -hmm. myth group of Irish myth misfits who dropped out of school in ninth grade. They couldn't hold down a job. They wanted to sleep late, spend a lot of money, have a good time, and they gravitated to an assortment of crimes. But eventually burglary and there was uh they they had their own code they had their own system it was very profitable and so for a good generation or so you had a lot of uh irish and polish and jewish and whatever you know mutts who that that became their career and they did very well at it the smart ones invested their money in legitimate businesses and if they're alive today are probably doing okay, but a lot of others just spent the money as quickly as they got it, never thought of tomorrow, and they're on the balls of their ass now. Yeah, I saw I saw in one of the uh I saw in one of the uh the articles about the book, uh, you had asked one guy if he had any regrets and he said, Yeah, I didn't uh He's like, my, my big regret is that I didn't do a better job saving the money. <laughs> so. No, no, I, I, uh, I talked to uh, a number of the, uh, uh, there, there's very few of them left. Right. And Chick Goodrow uh, is one of them, and I feature him in the book. And uh, he's not in great shape financially. Uh, and some of the others are, you know, uh, somewhat destitute. Uh, but there were some smart ones who invested in an assortment of things, and, and they did okay with it. Did these guys clash at all with the, the Philly um, Italian mob, or they, they were all kind of in their own world? They didn't. They, they were in their own world. Uh, they, uh, they stuck to second-story work, and then they expanded from Philly to Abington to Rydal to the main line. Uh, then they would go to, you know, the wealthy areas of Jersey. They'd go up the uh, turnpike to 
the Hamptons. They would go to uh, Westport, go further up into Massachusetts. They'd go south. They'd go west. They went all over the country. It really became a very successful system where either they would drive to these places and and hit over the course of a weekend, uh, 10 to 15 very exclusive homes, or they would fly into L.A. or Scottsdale or Houston and then package the swag and then ship it back to uh, Philly. So uh, they, they had their, their own sophisticated system. They did very well. And I think I can safely say, because I interviewed a lot of uh, police chiefs around the country who were very much harassed and bothered and troubled by what they eventually found out to be the Irish mob from Philadelphia was coming into their cities and ripping the hell out of them. And they were far better and more astute and clever and successful than any of the local burglars. And that was confirmed when I talked to FBI agents who were sent into Philly to crack down on them because there were so many other police departments from around the country who were pissed off that the Irish mob out of Philly just banged us, you know, for 15 homes. And, you know, you got to do something about it. Did I read that you said that they didn't they didn't carry any weapons or any guns to that, keep their charges at a minimal? That was part of the system that they were so uh, accomplished that they didn't need a weapon. And they knew if they had a weapon and got caught, it would only uh, worsen their situation. So they did not carry weapons on the job. Now, when they're celebrating after a score on a weekend at a bar in Kensington or Northeast Philly, yeah, they had weapons and they did shoot each other a lot, Uh, but not when they were working. You know, uh, in many cases, they were dressed up like businessmen with a briefcase so that, you know, nobody would, you know, uh, take them as a as a threat. Hmm. So uh, they, they were very clever and they got away a with a, a lot of money, a lot of jewelry, a lot of uh, artwork, a lot of silverware. And then in the late 70s, they gravitate to uh, meth and they make Philly the meth capital of the country. Uh, as you may have perceived, as the decades go on, these guys get older They no longer want to climb fences, jump out of windows, carry a a bag of of tools. And so they go into drugs and they help make Philly the meth capital of the country. And with drugs, you can make 10 times the money with uh, one tenth the effort. Uh, Great money. Some of them had millions of dollars in their house stashed away, but you could also end up getting a 40, 50, 60 year sentence. Some got a life sentence and many got killed in some transactions that went bad. So when they moved from one uh, arena of crime, burglary to drugs, uh, it was a very, very risky, dangerous proposition. Some made out well, others ended up dying in prison from long sentences or getting shot at the scene of a deal gone bad. When, when you say that guys are doing second story work, uh, tell people what you mean by, by that particular term. Well, that, that is a very old, basically 19th century term, may go back earlier than that, second story work, meaning that uh, you're climbing up to a second or third story where you perceive or expect windows and doors to be open. Uh, people, if they had any sense, would lock their windows and doors. 
Uh, but in many cases, they figure nobody's going to jump up or climb up to a second or third story window. So uh, the nickname comes about uh, a burglar was a second story man. Gotcha. Did you have any uh, pushback on that one? Did you have people saying, hey, you better not publish this? Hey, this isn't, uh, you know. I, had, is- I had a number of threats from uh, the burglars telling me if they saw their name in the book, I'd find myself in the Delaware with cement boots on. (laughs) Uh, There, there were a number of those threats, but there were also individuals who told me I'd end up in the river if I didn't put their name in the book. (laughs) 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 Yeah. They enjoyed the limelight. They had no problems with uh, themselves being identified as criminals or burglars. And I mentioned one of them, Chick Goodrow, who I still speak to on a weekly basis. Uh, he was one of those who saw uh, from a Stu Bykovsky column in the Daily News that Alan Hornblum's writing a book on the K&A gang. And he looked me up, tracked me down. He may have called Bykovsky, actually. And uh, we're still friendly today. And that's like 20 years. And now when I give talks at various places on that book, I'll ask the people, uh, would you like to hear from a, one of the burglars? And if so, I bring him stories <laughs> about, you know, breaking into Don Ho's place in Hawaii and, <laughs> and, and so forth. Don Ho. One of the ones that I, Did he party with Don Ho's or he robbed it. He, he tried to uh, burgle the place. <laughs> he tried to burgle Don Ho's house. Yeah, well, it wasn't his house. He lived in the penthouse in a uh, in a hotel in Honolulu, and uh, Chick was actually in Honolulu. Uh, he had money. He had a wife or a girlfriend or both, and he's there with one of them. And uh, he had actually, uh, while waiting for an elevator one day at the hotel, he sees uh, clothing from a dry cleaners and the name Don Howe on the slip. And so he recognizes the name and he gets in the elevator that goes up to the penthouse and he figures that, yep, this is Don Howe, the entertainer. So later that day, he uh, goes up himself on the elevator and he, uh, he has a piece of Lloyd with him, as he always carried. It's a piece of plastic that he used to open doors. And as he would argue, he can crack a door with a piece of Lloyd uh, quicker than uh, Johnny can with his key. So uh, he gets himself into Don Ho's, uh, you know, I don't know if it was on the 18th floor or 30th floor. It has a, a big, you know, view of the bay and uh, a grand... Uh, you know, uh, fish tank and all sorts of amenities. He's impressed with it, decides he has to leave, and he does. And later that night, while he's having a nice dinner and drinking too much with his wife or girlfriend, he says, would you like to see Don Ho's place? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he takes it up on the elevator, and uh, he's trying to release the the lock on the door and he gets sense that there's somebody on the other side. He can't free the lock. And he tells his girlfriend to get out of here. I think there's somebody in there. Scram, scram. There was, she gets on the elevator, goes down. 
and he bolts for the steps and he was down at the first floor before she was <laughs> uh, they call the police and she gets caught oh man the police in the lobby and uh, she manages to say that she's drunk. She just wanted to get an autograph from Don Howe. And they figure she's innocent. She's not too smart. She's from Philly, whatever. <laughs> from Kensington. Uh, right. And they, uh, right away, when they got out of there, they left the very next day or that night. They bolted. They came back. They, didn't, they you know, were afraid the law enforcement would catch them and pursue them. And there's lots of stories when you talk to these guys. They all have their interesting and humorous accounts. Hey, uh, Alan, we have a question from someone who's watching now. They want to know if, um, did the K&A gang have any bar or business that they would use as their main meeting place on Kensington Avenue? Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the uh, the most well-used and famous was Kellis's. Kellis was right there at K&A. I guess it would be the north, excuse me, the southwest corner was Kellis's at the intersection of K and A. It was there for decades. And the uh, the burglars would meet there. That was a takeoff spot. They would meet there, have a few drinks. And when they had their three or four guys, they'd get in the car and then they'd go to Hazleton or they'd go to Cherry Hill or they'd go to Princeton or they'd go to Pennington and, and they'd knock off three or four houses at a time. There were some other bars that they went to that they hung at, the Purple Derby, and uh, a few others for entertainment purposes and to pick up girls like the JR Club and the Erie Social and stuff like that. Uh, there was a, an interesting bar that I, I was in called Jack's on the northwest corner of K&A. But for some reason, even though it was a decent bar, they never tended to hang there. I guess the proprietor wasn't that comfortable with them and made them feel uncomfortable. But the uh, the K and A guys spent a lot of time at Kellis's right there on the southeast corner. Now was this gang more like a like was it a democracy? <laughs> they all came and split up the loot, or was it like a guy that you had to like you know like you pay tribute? It normally, it wasn't. I should point out as I did at my classes at Temple, it wasn't the Italians. It was not a hierarchic system as you find in the mafia with a. Uh, the uh, the the main boss, and then you have an underboss, and then you have you know your conciliary and your capos and what have you. It, it's not rigid like that. What you have are these free floating groups. Uh, it's not one gang. It's a collection of guys who work as a unit. Sometimes they would join different groups, but normally they stayed within their two, three, four, five, six guys. And somebody would say at a bar, you interested in, uh, you know, doing a piece of work tonight, doing a piece of work did not mean, you know, going to work at a uh, Kensington factory and making sweaters. It means getting in the car, driving to Haverford or Radnor and knocking off a house or two. Mm -hmm. and, and so each crew did tend to have, a boss, okay, a crew chief who tended to be either the most cerebral or the most experienced or the toughest one or the best organized. And, and so you would have one guy as the boss and then you would have three or four other guys and then they would uh, either be told or decide amongst themselves that when they break into a house and they had keys to many of the houses, 
uh, where they used the brute to break open the front door. But one guy would stand by the front door, the front window. Another guy would, would go through the house looking at other rooms. Uh, one guy, uh, generally the boss, would go to the bedroom because that's where everybody, including Johnny, keeps his uh, jewelry and his money. You know, people like to keep it close to them, so they keep it in a chest of drawers or someplace like that. And uh, other the, the other person would go and, and check out the kitchen for silverware, uh, check out, you know, the house for artwork. And then they would get all that swag within five or ten minutes, put it in a trunk of a car, and then go to another house. Crazy. So, uh, Alan, you you read books on organized crime, Soviet espionage, unethical experiments on prisoners. You do a fiction book, and you base it on four inmates being basically baked to death at Holmesburg. Right. Like, are you? Do you do anything on the lighter side of life, like comedies, <laughs> like uh, sports? You're a very serious man. Uh, I do sports. I played some bad tennis this afternoon. I walked my dog about five times. And as you can hear, he's destroying a box <laughs> delivered to me. I'm, I'm afraid to take a look at it once I get off. The uh, when I do get off, I've got to walk him because it's a five month old border collie. I'm actually surprised he's letting me do this. Normally, if I'm doing an interview, he, he thinks he knows the answers better than I do. Uh, but the lighter side, uh, I'm not sure there is a lighter side. Uh, I take a trip overseas periodically. And uh, once in a while, I'll catch a Woody Allen movie if, if it's good. But uh, no, I'm, I'm not sure there's a light, uh, a lot of uh, lightness in being there. But uh, that's uh, that's the way it rolls in Philly, right? That's right. Yep. That's right. Um, well, you definitely have a uh, quite an eye for uh, interesting story. No question about that. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, we, we appreciate you coming let on. Me, let we me want to say this to you. I, I know from the little that I know of you guys, and that comes from a post office wall, that you don't do, uh, <laughs> you don't do second chances. But if you ever want to do a uh, another segment when you go national uh on let's say the like K or the experiments i can bring in a former inmate and i can bring in a uh chick goodrow a former burglar who can tell yeah. you a story well alan before the pandemic we would meet people at the bar of their choice so it sounds like we need to go to one of these bars on KA. you bring chick yeah yeah and have, have a couple yeah. pints and, and catch up yeah i'll bring yeah. a six or an occult and a, uh, <laughs> and that's what I was doing actually when I was doing research at the bars, the river wards at night. Uh, many a night I was carrying a snub nose, uh, you know, sure. 357 mm -hmm. because uh, those places can get hot. And uh, and many times I, I was doing a lot of drinking, I uh, didn't want to, but you could, uh, you were always thought suspicious in the first place asking these questions mm -hmm. but if did a lot of that without drinking it, it only aggravated the situation yeah. so right. i i did a lot of beer drinking in those days uh fortunately that that's over with yeah uh don't have to so i can be happy with my coca-cola or a nice glass of rose now nice but uh yeah, yeah no, that, no 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 rose at k a right 
Nobody's ordering ro- rosé while they're talking to about one of your books. They need to just do a movie about you, man. Because you, you, you sound like a detective from like the 70s, bro. Like, <laughs> I know. You know, you know he's, he's got a real gumshoe vibe to him. You guys are perceptive enough to pick up on something, and that is I've led a lot of demonstrations. Mm-hmm. That got me notif- noticed by the FBI and and the authorities that be, but I've also done a lot of uh, work in the law enforcement community, and now I'm asked to come to the FBI headquarters to give talks on Soviet espionage. Right, and right. so I I do have experiences that are on a wide uh, spectrum, and uh, I'm not sure there there's too many people who who sort of cover that ground from being you know, uh, eyed by the uh, civil uh, disobedience squad as as well as uh, being a member of law enforcement. All right. Well, do we want to take it, uh, take it to the blunt and uh, wrap it up? We'll wrap it up with some rapid fire questions, uh, rapid fire answers. Um, When uh, things finally uh, improve, where are you most excited to go back to uh, dinner? In the area, well, I actually live right next to uh, some uh, very nice upscale restaurants, uh, and I, I don't really dwell on food. Uh, what 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 I would like to do is is go over to Roland Garros or Wimbledon or Monte Carlo. I I am heavy into tennis. You may not notice it when you see me play, but I did write a 100-page <laughs> book about it. And it's nice to go overseas and combine it with a tennis tournament. And, uh, yeah, it's a possibility that I'll stop into a decent restaurant once in a while. Yep. Who's your favorite author? I don't think I have any one particular uh, favorite. There's a number of very good authors out there. I'll, I'll throw in Truman Capote. Uh, he only wrote wrote one book, and it's in the cold blood. Book yeah. In cold blood, and uh, I, I use that somewhat as a north star. Uh, my recently, when I, I took this initial maiden voyage with uh, historical fiction, I don't read fiction, I don't like fiction, but I think everybody else does. When you go on the beach in Avalon or LBI or AC, you're not reading about the brothers being used as guinea pigs. You know, they're, they're reading some of these later things. People really want to be entertained. They don't want to be educated. So I thought I would give it a crack because I have a number of accomplished friends who are authors and nonfiction. They've tried to write fiction. They couldn't do it. So it was sort of an intellectual challenge. And I uh, managed to get both a publisher and some decent reviews. So I guess I'm ahead of the game. There you go. Uh, if they made a film about you, who would you want to play you? What actor? Oh, it would have to be Burt Lancaster if they can bring him back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've had you've had all these different jobs. You've been doing all sorts of, of, of stuff. What has been your least favorite job of all the many jobs you've had? Wow. That's a very interesting, unique question. Uh don't compliment them. <laughs> I, I have a hard time. There, there were periods in each of them that were very, very stressful or difficult or boring. Uh, I, I can't pick out just one. You know, I, I have a number of friends who spent like 30, 40 years in one job. I can't conceive of that. I, I tended to move on after every three or four or five years. 
And uh, there were high points to those jobs, and there were some low points. I've worked in Congress. I've worked in prisons. I've worked in, uh, you know, uh, classrooms from, uh, you know, kids with intellectual disabilities to colleges. I'm often asked to give lectures, and, and now I give lectures. You know, it, it's sort of interesting. I flunk kindergarten, but here I am doing more <laughs> in Columbia and uh, Brown University on a number of occasions. So, uh, yeah, I've uh, I've been across the board. Absolutely, um, and this is this is a little maybe going a little bit deep, but how do you sleep after all the things that you've seen? Like, do, do you have nightmares about this shit? Because I feel like I'm going to have nightmares tonight just thinking about the, <laughs> the, the prisons and stuff. No, no. I, uh, I get this question a lot. It's slightly different. All right. I don't feel weird asking it now. All right. Well, no, no, no. Well, it, it's no, I, I don't get nightmares about that. I actually, after years working in a prison, I became very comfortable in the prison and I was more fearful on the street. I learned the culture of the prison, as many people do, who spend a lot of time in there, that you can recognize in a moment if there's something wrong, if you've got to have your wits about you, that something's going on that should not be, and you could be vulnerable. Uh, and I learned that uh, after a while and felt safer on the, the blocks in detention center than I did walking the streets of Philly. And that, that sounds crazy, but, you know, uh, there's an awful lot of street uh, uh, streets in Philly and a lot of dangerous streets. And you never know who's packing. Uh, everybody and more has a gun. And uh, it, it's it's so I uh, I don't really have uh, fears about that. Uh, but what I do get a lot is from people when I give talks about the experiments on children and on adults. Uh, doesn't that get me depressed? It doesn't get me depressed. It gets me angry, which helps foment my pursuit of the information, the history, the people who did it, why they did it, and, and making trying to settle some scores by exposing it and, and letting people know what went on in the name of science. Good stuff. Uh, tell us something beautiful about Philadelphia. Something beauty about Philadelphia. Well, I wrote a book about City Hall. You didn't mention that one. <laughs> that we all take for granted uh, is the largest uh, municipal building in America, maybe the world. And uh, a new book just came out on uh, the greatest city halls of America. And our city hall is one of the most prominent ones called the Great Granddaddy. And that statue of Philly Penn up there, uh, it's the largest statue on top of a building in the world. It's 37 feet tall and 27 tons. And it took 30 years to build that sucker. And it, some people would call it a monstrosity, but it, it's a very, very unique uh, building. Another one, of course, is Eastern State Penitentiary. And I've been in prisons around the world, and I can confirm that no building ever built in Philadelphia has ever had the impact around the world as Eastern State did because dozens and scores of prisons around the world were modder, modeled after Eastern. Nice. Right. Um, I, I, I really have no idea what to expect from this question, what your answer will be, but what, when you're, when you're relaxing, what kind of music are you listening to? 
Oh, I, I, I like uh, Bill Levins and and jazz. Uh, I like uh, Ralph Vaughan Williams and classics. I like uh, Copeland. Uh, there's some uh, hard rock that I like, but I, I tend to go with uh, jazz or uh, some classic stuff. All right. This is my last question for you. Um, you've you've spent a lot of time investigating people. How do you how do you know when someone is bullshitting you or lying to you? Uh, at this point, well, first of all, I, I, I have to articulate and admit, I don't trust any goddamn person. <laughs> <laughs> I am very curious about everybody. And when people told me that the guys on uh, Johnny Good Times are fairly decent, I of course doubted that. And it was confirmed after being with you for now. But, uh, uh, I I need to have confirmation. People will tell me about great deals or great deal things that they've accomplished or whatever. Uh, I take it with a grain of salt unless I've already done research on them or I, I do check people out. Uh, I've spent a lot of years in the criminal justice community. So you learn and develop a, a sixth, seventh, and eighth sense about who's a bullshit artist and, and who's trying to get over on you. And so, therefore, uh, you know, I, I don't take uh, anything for granted and, and doubt everybody and, until I, I have some proof, you know, that, uh, you know, they, they are who they say they are and they did what they say they did. Totally understandable. All right. If you're you're a tennis player, you're coming out at Wimbledon. What's your theme song when you come out onto the court? <laughs> wow, I haven't even thought about that. I'd like to go to Wimbledon. I, I've been there twice, but I've never seen a match. Uh, I don't know. It it, it could be. Uh, you maybe said hard rock. You said I'm dying to know what your hard rock choice is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. looks like a Steely Dan guy. Well, I do like them. I like Steve. <laughs> uh, I, it would probably be one of the uh, the Rolling Stones, you know, one of their uh, their jump and jive hits to get you moving. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm well. not as are you know uh, archaic as you think I may be. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, Alan, we thank you so much, man. Yeah, it's thanks a, a lot, Alan. Amazing. Uh, thanks for really, yeah, really uh, eye opening and, and and we really Dude. appreciate uh, appreciate yeah. your time. Yeah, appreciate it. Oh, plug the book. Sorry, plug the book. Uh, the newest uh, book is, uh, uh, what is it, Johnny? I forget at this point. I covered so many books. It's the Klondike Bake Oven Deaths. It's the history of inmates being cooked alive in Philadelphia in 1938. I think I'm the only <laughs> that's one. His, who knows that's his fiction book. Yeah, and it's that's it's beach read. Right, it's a light beach read, and and maybe <laughs> a serial or movie one day. Now it, it would really make a great movie because this, the city was corrupt as all hell back then, from the mayor to the police chief to the prosecutors to the heads of the prison. They tried to bury the whole thing under the rug, but it was this one coroner who stood up and said, "No, this this was a devastating tragedy that took place. I'm not standing for it." And he initiated on his own again. Against the will of the mayor, who was very tough, a blue ribbon uh, coroner's inquest. Otherwise, nobody would have ever known that this had happened. Hmm. Uh, so it, it, it's a uh, one of those situations where sa somebody stands up against the corrupt system. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what's your and, website? Uh, website, hornblum.com. Okay. 
Hornblum.com. All right, Alan. Well, thank you thank so you, much. Uh, we yeah, really appreciate you, and we yeah, will. Uh, again. And, and yeah, we'll have to get. Uh, we'll have to get Chick. We'll have to get us. Well, let's yeah, let's yeah, get yeah, to the bar with Chick. Bars on K and A, baby. Bars on K. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> take you there. All right, all right, man. Thank no, you. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Yep. Bye. 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 Covered in blood, the man's office is covered in bugs. The youth dreams cut short.